0: Hi, I'm Erica Keswin. Welcome to Left to Our Own Devices, a show that explores how to bring our human to work and to life. Because left to our own devices, we're not connecting. I have two amazing guests this week who will be joining me on the podcast. The first is Kasper Terkyle. He's a co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, which is a research and design consultancy working to create a culture of belonging. He is also a co-host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and he is the author of the recently, and he is the author of the recently released book *The Power of Ritual*. Casper describes himself as someone who is helping to build a world of joyful belonging. Casper will be joined by his colleague Angie Thurston, who is also a co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, as well as a Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School. She and Casper co-authored a seminal report on millennial community in America called *How We Gather*. Angie describes herself as someone who loves helping people come together to co-create something bigger than themselves. Casper and Angie are all about rituals, and I know that you will enjoy this show, especially as we enter the holiday season.
1: Thank you for being here today.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, doing well. Great to be here.
0: All right. Well, we have three of us. We have New York City, we have Brooklyn and Alexandria, Virginia. So park for the course in, in 2020. So as I said before, we got started live. I have been big fans of both of yours for many years when I read your research paper, How We Gather. And, you know, I'm a big gatherer myself. So we'd love for you to talk a little bit about that paper, but even more so, how are we gathering right now? And and what is the impact on this pandemic on how we gather and how have our rituals changed? I know that's a big and loaded question, so you guys can figure out how you want to address it.
2: I was going to say, Angie, you want to take the first half? I'll take the second.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds perfect. Well, Casper and I met in Divinity School, of all places. We were unlikely candidates for Divinity School, both of us having been raised unaffiliated religiously, but we ended up there because we were really curious about the changes that were happening to the landscape of the United States in terms of religious belonging and also in terms of community belonging and how those two intersected. And so we wrote How We Gather in 2015, really looking at how mostly millennials and um, the generation we're both part of, how were those folks coming together around the United States, recognizing that that was happening in different ways than generations prior, and that our generation was less affiliated with organized religion than generations prior as well. So we were really looking at secular communities like fitness communities and arts communities, justice communities, gaming communities that were in some ways filling in for religion in the sense that people were finding things there like personal transformation and contributing to social change and finding a sense of purpose, holding each other accountable, all these kinds of things. And so we were really struck by the growing, emerging secular landscape that was really filling some religious needs in people's lives.
2: And those trends have have definitely continued. Even Gen Z is going to be something like probably about 50% religiously unaffiliated. So the changes just on a a demographic level are enormous. I think what COVID is doing is really accelerating some of those pre-existing trends. So if you look at the rates of social isolation in the United States, for example, and, and social isolation is the, the, the kind of structural ways in which we're spending more time alone, getting married later or getting divorced, uh, working from home, living on our own. Of course, COVID is, is accelerating that trend enormously. But I think one of the ways that it's been helpful for me to think about how it's shifted our relationships is if you imagine kind of concentric circles of proximity in terms of the depth of relationships that we have, we're spending more and more time with the people at the very heart of our circle the people we live with most predominantly and a lot of those kind of outer circles have fallen away acquaintances maybe even strangers that we share a sweet moment with so some of the the kind of relational needs that we have right now in the pandemic in in order to stay safe is new things to do with the people we spend all our time with and unstructured kind of serendipitous ways in which we can interact with strangers uh, obviously at a safe distance or digitally and you can't schedule that so that's quite a tricky thing In terms of gathering, I think we're really missing that sense of connecting to others in these kind of sweet serendipitous moments.
0: Well, I would say personally, I can't agree with that more. You know, I often say this pandemic is happening to all of us, but in very different ways. People living alone. I'm living with five people, but there have been times where I have felt more alone than ever, even though I have a lot of people Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. my my house, to your point that we're not seeing Those acquaintances. And just a couple of days ago, I, you know, we did it in a very safe way and were tested, but a few of my friends, we got together and it, I, I will speak for me. I mean, it fueled me that I am realizing more and more that I need those outside relationships. And so when you think about it in your work and how we gather and Casper in your new book, The Power of Ritual, you talk about these communities like CrossFit and SoulCycle. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that do feel that that SoulCycle, for example, is their family and felt Mm. such a sense of loss. So how are, what are people doing to replace that right now?
2: Well, I just want to emphasize something that you said, Erica, which is that, the the experience of being alone, even while we're surrounded by other people. That is the difference between social isolation that I just mentioned, and the experience of loneliness, because loneliness is about the quality of the relationships that we have. And so we can feel actually maybe even more alone than ever while surrounded by others. And so, you know, if if we're not feeling seen or rested or understood or connected, that is such a common experience. And the impact of that on our health and well-being is enormous. There's been a lot of research over the last few years about the impacts on our health. Loneliness is now uh, deemed to be as impactful on our mortality as being clinically obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's really serious when we think about it this way. So I think it's it's absolutely vital that we find ways to safely connect with others. So first of all, let me say I'm so glad you found a way to do that because it, it, it's important for our health and well-being. I think one of the, the things that I've learned over the last few months is that When we're trying to find ways to connect, it's very easy just to orient everything around the screen. And one of the best ways that we can feel connected is actually talking without having to look at each other on the screen. So whether it's going for like a walk and talk on the phone where, you know, both of you are walking through a local neighborhood, whether it's joining uh, a, a dance class or a workout class or something where you're moving your body, because even when we're moving our bodies at a distance from one another, just being in those repeated movements together can help you feel connected to others. So trying to just be a little bit more creative in how we think about that connection happening safely is super important.
0: And that's why this podcast is called left to our own devices, (laughs) you know, left to our own devices. We're not connecting and we have to be intentional about where, when, and how we connect or the whole day goes by the week goes by the month goes by at least for me. and, And it's not happening. So I know I have been trying through, through, maintaining existing rituals, but also new rituals to make sure that happens on a regular basis. So Angie, a question for you. I mean, rituals, I mean, I'm pretty psyched about it because I have a book coming out on rituals. You guys do work on rituals. Casper just wrote a book on rituals. Rituals seem yes. to be everywhere right now. And even since March, the New York Times had three articles on rituals and you guys had a major mm-hmm. full feature picture in the, in the paper talking about you know, the one soul and the workplace. And a lot of people thought it was an amazing article. There was also some, you know, some question, some questioning as well. You know, there Absolutely. was one, yeah, there was one quote that said, you know, it was more focused on the employers. They're like, what? Employers have figured out how to exploit society's crisis of meaning by turning workplaces into sites of cult-like religious devotion. I've seen both sides. So, you know, can you talk about that article and what are your thoughts? How was that for you? And, and where did you come out on it?
1: Yeah. I think building on what both you and Casper have been saying, a lot of what makes interaction meaningful can often have to do with the incorporation of shared praxis of doing something together. That's kind of a third thing. And that's part of what makes something like Soul Cycle so meaningful to people, right? Is that You're not just in a shared space, but you're doing something together, and you can each have your own experience of that thing. But there's a sense of having shared space and a shared activity. And that's a big feature of what ritual can do, right? Is to help mark experience, to give it a beginning and an end, and to allow us to each have our own personal experience, but to externalize it together. And when it comes to the workplace, we've been thinking about not only not only ritual, but the bigger picture of a whole you know a whole landscape of people who have these needs for meaning, needs for purpose, needs for a sense of connection, and they're bringing those needs essentially wherever they go, and the workplace ends up being a very ripe um, place to bring those needs in in large part because it kind of functions as that third thing, as that shared activity. So a lot of people during COVID, I've noticed, have been doubling down on work because it can sort of give you an outlet for a feeling of being purposeful and finding meaning in a time that's so uncertain. So a lot of what we really focus on, we, we talk about these needs for meaning and connection and purpose as soul needs. We often use three B's to describe them. We call them belonging, becoming, and beyond. So belonging has to do with knowing and being known, loving and being loved. Becoming has to do with growing into the people we're called to be. And beyond is that connection to something greater than ourselves. What we posit is that we all have these needs, these eternal longings, and they've usually been the realm of religion. But right now, so many people aren't finding that through the more traditional religious avenues. And so we're kind of casting about looking for where I, where can I meet those needs? And People are already going to the workplace, whether they're conscious of it or not, and trying to meet those needs there. And as you say, Erica, this can be very problematic. And I think people are right to really ask a lot of questions. We ask a lot of questions as well and raise a lot of red flags about the ways that that can go wrong. So a lot of what we do is not necessarily to impose religion on workspaces, but rather to lift up the ways that people are already coming to work with these needs and to try to work with employers to think about what can we do about that? It doesn't mean we have to address those needs in the workspace, but we should at least acknowledge them and try to make way for how people can meet them in their lives in general. And many people are spending more time at work
0: than they do at home. And so I've seen similar things that people are asking more from the workplace. So I I have seen it and, you know, I just was framed a little bit differently. When you talk about beyond and you want people at work to, to be connected to something bigger than themselves in your work, is that connected to a company's values in terms of especially younger generations really want to feel connected to the purpose of the organizations that they work for. Is that what you're getting with that third B?
2: This is a really crucial question because I think that's what, especially younger employees, as you said, as as the institutions that traditionally served, you know, our spiritual, our religious, our community lives are dwindling, the, the place where people go, especially younger people, as they enter their careers is the workplace, right? It's a place of purpose and meaning and connection. And so I think that beyond is definitely shaped by employees, by organizations, you know, in terms of the values that they hold and the vision that they have for the for the impact they're trying to have, especially organizations that have a, a purpose beyond just the bottom line, which you know, hopefully is, is everyone, I would be very hesitant about limiting how we think about what that beyond is just a company purpose. And I think this is where simply, sometimes there's a little bit of a clash and often you see a real disappointment among employees when they feel, right. it, it nearly feels like a betrayal when the values that they've held and that, that they've been told the organization has, when they then don't see it in practice, it's not just a, a sense of like, oh, that's frustrating, but it's really a sort of, a, a kind of, a, yeah, a sense of betrayal. Like existential
1: deepest. despair.
2: hundred <laughs> percent. And so I think that's that's why there's often this myth mismatch and that that, that sense of sadness, there's really a limited sense of where else that beyond could be. And I think one of the things we hope is to kind of rebuild, to use a slightly abstract phrase, but to rebuild somewhat the the spiritual infrastructure uh, that we need to be able to connect to our highest longings and, and that sense of a deeper purpose.
0: I'm pausing to take in that word spiritual infrastructure. So you have started the Sacred Design Lab to, among other things, dis- work with companies, right, to design mm-hmm. these rituals. So I have a sort of a two-part question, because in, in the work that I've done on rituals, many of the most impactful rituals that I've seen as I've been interviewing people, they've come about organically. You know, they're top-down or they're bottom-up, yes. and sometimes the person that started it has left the company, and it just, it sticks, so I guess I would love to get your thought on how do you design a ritual and what happens if it, if it doesn't stick and how do you measure you know, the impact of it?
2: I love that you point us to that, Erica, because I think one of the misnomers around ritual is that you come in with sort of colonial approach of like, we're going to impose this ritual on this on this place or this group of people. And it's often much more successful to to really go ritual spotting, as our friend Kershaw Ozank says, to look at what people are already doing and then help to give that some structural some structure or some, uh, uh, some shape uh, and some intentionality. So uh, you're absolutely right to, to think about, you know, how are people already congregating? What are the moments in which, you know, it can be as small as celebrating birthdays or milestones or coming together, you know, uh, to, to mourn something that's gone horribly wrong and then to and to develop that and give it some some structure and formality. I think you see some really lovely kind of cultural interventions. Gina Rodana X has a, a wonderful Day of the Dead celebration uh, where she leads the entire organization to kind of basically on an altar share all of the failures of that year because it's an organization that's very, very oriented around innovation and being comfortable with failure. So they need a chance to practice that and to give it some shape and structure. And so finding things that are already happening, kind of drawing on ancient wisdom to look at how communities and, and religious traditions have done that kind of thing successfully over time and then designing for that in a contemporary context, I think is absolutely the way to go. In terms of measuring it, this is one of the perennial questions we're working on. We're actually doing some research right now to come up with a way to measure spiritual well-being. Some of the things you can pay attention to, even in a, an informal way, is their enthusiasm in participation, always the obvious one. Are people rethinking? Questions not only in their professional life but even in their personal life as they participate. Are people showing up with an authentic and nonetheless boundaryed vulnerability that allows for a more human connection rather than just a, a role connection? Those are some things you can pay attention to. But it's a, a tricky thing to do because often the real impacts of these kind of practices don't just happen in the moment; they happen over time. So you need a longer horizon to really understand the fullness of the impact of, of some of these practices.
0: Uh, it may- makes sense. Well, I look forward to seeing and reading some of that Some of that new research. Are there any other recent projects that you can share? I know the article said you worked with Pinterest and some other companies. I think the listeners often love to hear some examples where they could take that and say, huh, would something like that ever work in my organization?
2: Yeah, I'm uh, happy to share a little bit about Pinterest, and and I'm, I'm sure you'll have other ideas of, of what to share as well. So this was a wonderful project in which we got to work with the architects of the proposed new head office to think about what the future spaces might be that the Pinterest team needs. So knowing that, as we talked about before, younger people are bringing more of these questions of community, of meaning, of purpose to the workplace, you know, are we gonna need more than just desks and meeting rooms? And, and certainly since the hit of COVID, of course, that whole question has been escalated. And I think this is an opportunity to really rethink our physical workspaces. You know, if more and more of us are gonna be working from home longer term, we're discovering, think, that you can do a lot of the kind of grind work and the task execution from home. But perhaps some of that imagination, some of that conflict resolution, some of that, you know, real nitty gritty uh, uh, creative work is harder to do. So. You know, is the future of the workspace a forest in which you can take long walks and 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 talk with a small group of people? Um, you know, is, is the future uh, workspace going to have uh, a place in which we're stimulated in our imagination? Uh, you know, maybe you need a movie theater. Like, who who knows? Um, so really, allowing ourselves to to kind of think very expansively. Uh, and to put at the centre, as always is in our work, those those eternal human longings—longing for becoming, the longing for belonging, the longing for uh, the, the beyond—to put those at the centre of the design experience um, has been a really you know fruitful and, and energising process in that context.
1: Great, Andy, so, that you want to yeah share? to build on that, and and of course you know as as COVID has come that that HQ project is is no longer happening, at least for the foreseeable future. And so just another kind of related project has been with Sundance Labs and the Sundance Film Festival, Um, given that they could not do the labs or the festival in person, to think about how do we create ritual experiences that will allow participants to feel that they are engaging in something that is um, time apart, right? That they feel that they're Mm. in, um, you know, what Ida Benedetto and other experienced designers would describe as a magic circle, right? That you've actually arrived somewhere, that the way you are here is different from the way you are in other time and other places, and that you can have the kinds of experiences, relationships, and conversations here that are different. And so that was a really fun Mm. project to get to work with some of their leadership around imagining you know, rites of passage, the notion of pilgrimage, a lot of these, you know, what we would talk about as ancient technologies that have come down to us across centuries from our wisdom traditions, how do we put those in service of cultivating experiences of meaning now? I'm somebody, I'm on this Zoom to that Zoom to the next
0: Zoom, and now I want to watch a Sunday, a film from the Sundance Film Festival, but feel different and feel transported to have a deeper connection with this film, with myself. So how do I do that?
1: Yeah. Well, so we ended up working on some principles of online ritual design, not just for that project, but more generally, because a lot of the folks we work with are community leaders and they're facing those questions, right? As so many of their programs and offerings have come online. And so I'd be happy to share those, but it, you know, we just thought through five principles, but one of them was that one I just mentioned about marking time, creating a frame essentially so that people know when they've entered the circle and when they've left it, creating ways of marking that opening, that closing and transitions. Another big one, which relates to what Casper was saying about going beyond the screen is just to actually use real things. So even if we are gathered virtually, to make sure that we're having a real sensory experience along with everyone else, whether that's lighting and extinguishing candles, draping ourselves in cloth, you know, pouring and drinking water. Obviously, everything must be context-specific you can still throw real candy at a bat mitzvah, right? You can still like do a real scavenger hunt. You can still have real cocktails at a happy hour. To remember that just because we're seeing each other often in this kind of virtual rectangle, that we're just as embodied as we always are.
0: I love that. Well, that, it goes back to what you've said in the paper. And I was just rereading Casper's book this morning about intention and then attention, and then repetition. So mm-hmm. to bring that, and and this morning I was actually walking with a bunch of friends with our dogs, and one of them has a bat mitzvah. So I think it's a great idea. I could go and drop candy off at everybody's apartments, and then when we're all on the screen, to be throwing candy at the screen. I mean, I think that's yes. a great, real tactile example that that's linked to tradition, but that can pull us in. To this event to be active versus being passive.
1: That's, That's right. right. Yeah, to actually be participatory. Right. Exactly.
0: I love that. So another question that I have been thinking a lot about. I, I, one, one of the phrases that I've been seeing in a lot of articles recently is about with all everything going on in the world with social unrest and diversity and inclusion and how do we get to a sense of belonging? And you've <clears> talked a lot <throat> about belonging in your work. Do you have a sense or what is your perspective on the impact on having rituals on belonging at work? And I ask that because, you know, we think, that, at least from my perspective, we could have the most diverse team on a Zoom or in a room. And if we're only hearing from three people, um, we are not (laughs) Getting the return that we know that we've seen through the data that we can get from a diverse group if people don't feel safe to talk and like they belong. So, I've been thinking a lot about rituals from that perspective. You know, do you guys have a take on that?
2: Yeah, there's, I mean, this is such a rich topic. The first thing I would say is that when, when we talk about belonging, very often we kind of limit our understanding of what that means to a relational element between human beings. So we think about belonging, it's about like, do I fit in with these people? And our understanding of belonging is a little bit more multi-layered because our experience of belonging is also shaped about a connection to place, about a connection to story, uh, a connection to lineage across time. So there's all of these dimensionalities to belonging. So when, you know, people have that very thin sense of belonging that it doesn't feel Real, it doesn't feel authentic, it doesn't feel safe. I love that you use that word. I think often it's those other elements that are also missing, in addition to insufficient social connection. Another, of course, hugely important element when we think about moving across race or class or or position within an organization is about power. And so making sure that when we create rituals, we're not actually just reifying the same structures that are not working (laughs) in ritual, because that can just do more damage. It's not like rituals some sort of kind of sold-all situation. So one of the ways you can avoid that is by ensuring that people are co-designing, right? It's not just being done from from the top down. Uh, As we talked about before, building on what people are already doing so that there's an an agency and an authenticity to those rituals. Uh, Giving opportunities for different people to lead. One of the ways that we saw this in real time actually at the Divinity School uh, at Harvard was as the student population changed from just being Protestant Christian ministers in training and grew to a multi-religious context and then kind of beyond even religious identities uh, to, to more secular people, trying to water down the traditionally Protestant worship service and make that for everyone proved less and less effective over time. And so what the community chaplain decided to do differently was to say, we're not going to do the same thing every week. Every week, we're going to go to a different community within the school. And so this week, the Buddhists are hosting. Next week, the Baptists are hosting. Then the, you know, Reformed Jews are hosting. And so it allowed for a, a multiplicity and a rotation of leadership, which meant that it wasn't the lowest common denominator that wouldn't offend anyone, but there was kind of equal opportunity to offend, if I, if I could put it in a sort of uh, you know uh, joking way in that sense. But it, but it allowed people to express what was real for them. And it invited folks to participate as much as they were comfortable in one another's practices. And so there's inspiration there, I think, to think about in an organizational context. It's not necessarily just to look for the lowest common denominator that, that doesn't actually really work for anyone, but to allow people to invite others into their world um, for a moment, and then to reciprocate them the next time. And I
1: think that dimension of you know that people can participate as much or as little as they feel comfortable. Obviously, with the encouragement that to participate fully, I think that's very important. You know, none of this can ever be coercive. We don't want to introduce right. <laughs> ritual spaces that are supposed to deepen meaning that then become something that you have to participate in, or else you feel like your job is on the line that I think is a really important element to just lift up. I'll also just give an example from our own workplace. Casper and I have a third colleague named Sue and the three of us have been remote um, for a few years now. And we have a covenant together It's a covenant that we co-wrote and that we revisit and update regularly as our work and as the three of us change. But every Monday at our team meeting, we read our covenant aloud and we each take a stanza and rotate. And then that becomes our opportunity to actually Ask ourselves, how are we doing with this? How are we living into these aspirations that we've set for ourselves? And it's also a time when, you know, if there's something on our minds that maybe. Casper has something he really wants to share with me about feedback he has for (laughs) the way that I did something on a project, that's the time when we can do it. So it kind of takes the charge out of any interpersonal things that come up or things that can go deep, like around power, around any of these issues, right? That becomes the time, the set-aside time and place to raise questions like that and in a container that is ritualized. So there's a a sense of safety in the container that we've created this covenant together. We've all committed Mm -hmm. to it and we can bring hard things here. And we know that we can move through those hard things and get to the other side. So that's just another one I would lift up that's been really powerful for us in a workplace setting.
0: Oh, I love that. And, And it seems like it almost can make it less personal in a positive way because you're also talking about things Right, right. Relative to the covenant that you've all written together,
1: exactly, exactly, and sure. and
0: have mutually agreed that this is the way. At least for now, we are gonna we are gonna work together. So
1: exactly. So like we've all committed to right speech in our work in our lives, right? <laughs> that we're gonna, um, as you know, that what we say is in front of someone is the same as what we would say if they weren't in the room. That kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's an example of something where we can we all know about that we reread it every week and mm. so if one of us finds ourselves not living up to that there's a way that uh, yeah we can kind of relax around it and be like you know what i confess i did this and you know i'll do better next time and um, just having that feeling of kinship around those shared commitments just makes everything feel lighter
0: yeah well it goes back to your third b of beyond you know and that you're connected yeah. to each other and to yourself but also to something something bigger which is your collective organization. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So my last question before I get into just a few fun rapid fire questions is, is something that I ask all of my guests and I'll frame it a little differently for you guys in that, you know, we're all in this business of, of thinking a lot about rituals. You know, when I started talking to people about what are your company rituals, some people would sort of look at me with a <laughs> blank look. I got We don't have any rituals. And so I finally figured out a question to ask that helped people identify their rituals. And the question was, you know, I'll use SoulCycle as my example here since we were talking about it. But I would say, so what makes employees feel most soul cycle ish or most (laughs) like soul cycle employees and then people would say oh it's at our team meeting or it's at our annual award thing you know and all of a sudden they would start talking so my question for both of you is what do you do in your lives that make you feel most like you
2: Mm, it's such a lovely question erica the covenant is central. So that's definitely one of them. <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, we're a very small team where there's, there's just three of us. We work with uh, collaborators externally, but the, the core is just the three of us. And so as a remote team, we often travel to be with one another, obviously pre-COVID. Um, and I would say when Sue cooks eggs, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, she is an incredible chef. Eggs of every variety are world famous. So that there's just a couple of a couple of traditions I guess we have now in the different places that we go when we are together and when we are in the uh Tacoma area uh, Sue's eggs is definitely one of them for me
0: <laughs> what about for you just as a person what do you do that makes you feel most like Casper oh gosh well my uh, I'm very uh passionate about my
2: tech sabbath practice so on Friday night I I Turn off my phone and turn off my laptop, and then I light a little candle and sing a little song uh, in my living room. And um, very much inspired by Abraham Joshua Heschel and the the Jewish tradition, I kind of enter the the palace in time, as he describes it, the the taste of heaven. And for me, it's just, well, we we can't move through space, we can move through time. And so that practice of rest, not as recharging for the work week, but rest as itself the goal, is one of the delights that, yeah, really uh, keeps me. In in good stead.
1: Yeah, well, I think mine is also a palace in time. (laughs) Um, But for me, it's probably the 20 minutes that I spend every morning in meditation, or I think about it as communing with my own inner spirit and just knowing that that is a time that's waiting for me every morning and that I can spend it however I want, whether I'm sitting in my meditation chair or whether I'm walking in the woods, whether I'm silent, whether I'm singing. Sitting, standing, walking—you know—but just the fact that that is available, and regardless of whatever else is kind of swirling, that that is a time that is devoted to just being be, being me, <laughs> and also of that kind of connection to something beyond myself. Oh, I
0: I love that because when you know that it's something that you're doing every day or every Friday, there is something calming and knowing about that repetition of mm-hmm. that that it's something. Yes. To look forward to as crazy as the rest of today might be, tomorrow morning, Angie, you have that to get to settle yourself and the world. So I think, you know, we all need to figure out for ourselves, and hopefully this will spur a lot of thought with the listeners to say, what are the things I can do that make me feel me and bring intention, attention, and in your words, repetition to that?
1: Yeah. I'm curious about one, what one of yours might be, Erica.
0: So mine is my Starbucks barista, uh-huh. on 80th and Broadway, inspired the name of my first book, Bring Your Human to Work. And so my daily ritual is around coffee. Mm. If there's a Starbucks nearby, it's a very specific order. And what I've, I, I had this, personal transformation a number of years ago, probably I had at one point, I had three kids under two. And I would go get my coffee and would make my to do list and I'd be working and I'd feel so productive. And then I one day realized I didn't even taste it. And I was so <clears throat> sad because I look oh. at night, I look forward to it. That's like the next morning. And so I I, you know, again, rereading all of your work, what I realized is that I sort of stopped and thought about it and said, you know what, if I can bring intention and attention and the repetition was already built in because I'm drinking it every day, it would bring me a different type of connection to myself, to my family, to something bigger and and time to just think. And so I really moved from making my to-do list with my little boxes that I would check off every day to sitting and holding the cup in my hands and feeling the warmth.
2: I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And Erica, what's so beautiful, you're pointing to that triptych of intention, attention, repetition, you know, so much of religious history in terms of ritual creation is is finding ways to help us pay attention and i love that you're using an example with food and drink because you know if you think to so many of the most important rituals it is using different things that we drink or eat as well as things that we hear and we smell and we touch that help us be present and so using a cup of coffee i think is is a really beautiful one
0: i mean even just telling that story like lowers my stress level like there's just something right. about intention and attention. And, and mm. I think the days just go by and things are so crazy right now for so many people. And what I also think about is that many of these things cost nothing and they don't take a lot of time or don't have to. It's just, it's just yeah. flicking the switch on that intention and attention. So I'm hoping that people can really learn from this and try it and see what works for them. So I could talk to you guys all day. I look forward to seeing you and meeting you all in person. So, just a couple of fun, quick, quick questions. Any time for binge watching on Netflix or Hulu or, or any other channel? And you go first. I am
1: the worst at this. <laughs> <laughs> I am the worst at this. But I was just told to watch Ted Lasso.
0: Oh, my husband just started that. He's a huge soccer fan. So, okay. <laughs> That's That's supposed to, it's supposed time. to be great. All right, Casper, what about you?
2: I, th- I think the last one I really like did everything in a day was the second season of Fleabag, which I just think is yep. majestic. Yep.
0: All right. And what about, are you guys reading any good books, fiction, nonfiction?
2: Yeah, I'm just reading Mad- Madeline Miller's Circe, finally getting around to that, which I'm very much enjoying. And I just started on Pope Francis's new en- encyclical on the uh, Fratelli Tutti, the, the kind of brotherhood of humanity, which is um, a-, a-, a stimulating read. <laughs> but I'm only on page four, so there's okay. a little while to go.
1: Angie, anything on your end? I'm reading Tara Isabella Burton's Strange Rites, which I know she and Casper recently had a conversation, but that's all about kind of what's going on with American religious life, which I'm always nerdy about. And then I'm also reading a book by a fellow Divinity School student who was there with us. um, Well, now, of course, graduate, but who's a name is Lama Rod Owens, and his book is called Love and Rage: The Path of Liberation Through Anger. And he's done a lot of work with kind of radical Dharma and the Zen tradition. So, those are two I would recommend. Great. And the last question is: What's one thing you learned about yourself during this pandemic?
2: I really, really like sourdough bread. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: bread making was a big thing during this, during this uh-huh. time. And you, <laughs> what about <that> you? <sighs> Well, up until the pandemic, my husband and I had, we were married a couple of years, but we both had travel schedules that prevented us from being together more than like 30% of the time. So the last seven months, we've of course been together all day, every day. So one of the, one of the nice learnings of the pandemic has been that I liked being with him every day. (laughs) I think we chose well. And that despite that, I really do love and value my independence and my autonomy and we've managed to create space for that too right well thank you both
0: so much i again love talking to you love this topic keep going and i look forward to reading your new research and staying in touch
2: thanks erica great to be with you
0: thanks so much thank you take care and be safe (laughs) thank you for tuning in this week to left to our own devices If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you want to receive my monthly newsletter, text the word HUMAN to 66866. Or you can connect with me by email at at spaghettiproject.com. Stay safe, stay connected, and I'll see you next time.